we were thinking of all the wild times that we used to have. When we would creep into a Holiday Inn bathroom, all of us in the dead of night, unwrap a bar of soap and leave it unused the following morning. It's one o'clock and time for lunch. Bum da dum de dum. When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. Our court jester, Mr. Peter Gabriel, would probably like to say a few words. Contrary to public opinion, we were not taking the night off to watch the elephants mating at the zoo. Can you tell me where my country lies? Cried the uniform to his true love's eyes. This is David Colosi with another episode of The Napping Wizard Sessions. For this one, I'm returning to a tribute, this time for Peter Gabriel. But I'm zeroing in on a very specific period of time and not even the music. My attention is on his stories. Now, when I tell people I'm doing a Peter Gabriel tribute, they usually mention two things. First, it's John Cusack holding a boombox over his head playing In Your Eyes in the 1989 film Say Anything. And second, they usually hum the bars of a Genesis song during the years when Peter was no longer with them, or worse, a Phil Collins song. To be clear, I'm a huge Genesis fan. But to be even clearer... I'm only a fan from 1967 to 1975. These are the years Peter was in the band. For the next two years, until 1977, while Steve Hackett remained in the group, the music is still enjoyable. But with the exception of a few live recordings like Seconds Out and Four Sides Live, I find Genesis post The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway progressively, if gradually, descended away from their artistic roots and fully embraced pop commercialism. The very specific Genesis that I'm talking about covers the recordings from Genesis to Revelation to The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, accounting for various bootlegs along the way. And that's pretty much 1967 to 1975. You know what you are, you don't give a damn. Peter Gabriel, Anthony Phillips, Tony Banks, and Mike Rutherford were schoolmates at the Charterhouse School when they started the band. Steve Hackett and Phil Collins tried out for the band, and all of the members tell their own stories in various videos available on YouTube that came from the Genesis Archive box sets. Anthony Phillips, for example, seems to have left the band before their peak due to debilitating stage fright, but that's tangential. The years 1967 to 1975 saw the emergence of progressive rock, or prog rock, with bands that emphasized a classical influence on rock and roll. Bands like Yes, Rush, Emerson, Lake & Palmer, King Crimson, Hawkwind, and Genesis are among the best known. It's super questionable whether we want to include Kiss, Jethro Tull, Pink Floyd, Roxy Music, Traffic, and Frank Zappa in that group because though there might be some crossover and influence, their music doesn't define the genre. And then there are late generation bands like Primus, Marillion, and Asia that carried the torch a bit later. What dominated prog rock was primarily musicianship, orchestral pieces with umpteen-piece drum kits, 
dramatically tiered keyboards, synthesizers, organs, mellotrons, double and triple neck and 12-string guitars, and riffs taken from classical composers, and then complex time signatures and key changes. Just as bebop inspired a reaction in free jazz, so did prog rock inspire a reaction in punk. The Velvet Underground ushered in a breath of fresh and less pretentious air to what would become punk rock and all of its derivatives. If you're thinking of Spinal Tap right now, then you're on the right track with the ridicule of prog rock. Now the element that Genesis and specifically Peter Gabriel brought to the band and prog rock was theatricality. Most prog bands held theatricality and disdain because it tarnished the professional musicianship they were trying to personify. David Bowie, Kiss, Alice Cooper, and Peter Gabriel viewed this differently. David Bowie came from a theatrical background, studying mime with Lindsay Kemp and acting in films. Peter Gabriel, on the other hand, came into it from purely artistic play. David Bowie and his friend Mark Bolin mastered the art of fashion's one-upmanship ever since the first time they met as house painters in the late 1960s. David Bowie, with long hair, famously also wore a dress designed by Michael Fish for the cover of the 1971 British release, The Man Who Sold the World, though the earlier American cover had a cartoon illustration by Michael J. Weller. So when Peter Gabriel stepped onto the stage in 1972 at a former boxing ring in Dublin, wearing his wife's red Ozzy Clark dress and a fox head mask he had specifically made, one could see that Ziggy Stardust that same year was not alone. Kiss would come along with their makeup and costumes in March of 1973, well after Peter Gabriel had designed many of his outrageous costumes. In contrast to David Bowie, Gabriel didn't play up the androgyny that Bowie became iconic of. Instead, Gabriel's dress was employed for shock value, derivative of the cover art on their fourth studio recording, Foxtrot, by Paul Whitehead, rather than a specific song. And his bandmates were just as shocked as the audience. Most of the members thought this first costume was gimmicky, but when they saw the picture of Gabriel on the front cover of Melody Maker, they changed their tune and gave Gabriel free reign in the costume department. Some that followed included bat wings and a cape, an old man mask, a flower, lumpy bumpy slipperman, and lots and lots of makeup. While Gabriel's use of makeup and costume leaned less towards androgyny, even as Lou Reed dabbled with gender bending only for promotional effect, Gabriel did align with Bowie's character embodiment, storytelling, and theatricality. Genesis profited as a band because of Gabriel's costumes, his lyric contributions, and his storytelling and stage antics. At first, the Gabriel stories came in as filler while the band members tuned or changed their complex prog instruments. Rather than forcing the audience to wait out the technical difficulties, Gabriel stepped in as entertainer. Just as the costume separated the band from others by landing them on the cover of Melody Maker, so did Gabriel's stories offer their fans something different from other prog rock bands trying to rise to the top. To my knowledge, no other band from the period had a storyteller quite like Gabriel, and the integration of his lyrics with the costumes and the stories is unique in the narrative history of rock and roll. 
Other bands told stories in their lyrics and even acted them out on stage, but none narrated them like Gabriel. In the history of spoken word rock and roll, which I'll probably do a separate show of at some point, Gabriel and early Genesis hold a unique place. So that's my preamble. Now I'll play the stories in groups according to the songs they were paired with. Because Genesis did not have the foresight to record many of these shows, or at least those recordings have not been released, the pieces I collected mostly come from fan bootlegs. So the sound quality varies, and that I can't do too much about, so you'll have to battle through. As the band gets more popular, the recordings also improve. The other significant characteristic is that the stories change from show to show. You can hear Gabriel tweaking them, cutting old parts, and adding new bits on each retelling. This features one of the most uh, incredible feats of British musicianship. Musicianship. So I've included all of that variety, and in some cases this explains the poor audio quality. He only told some variations of the stories once, so to not leave out an interesting version, I included it in its rough form. In addition to telling the same story in a variety of ways, occasionally he tells one story, usually associated with one song, preceding a different song altogether. Maybe he was bored, maybe he got confused, which he improvises his way out of, or maybe he was just messing with his audience, which he loved to do. Before or after each version of the story, I'll name where and when the concert took place. In most cases, he announces the song to follow, which I won't play, so I'll leave the song naming to him. In the cases where the audio is difficult to make out, I might read the variation and point out the differences. Looking for someone. Please pay attention. It will occur once only at the very beginning of the song. I guess I'm doing that. What you'll also notice is that as the band progresses and the costumes, theatrics, and stories become part of the stage productions, the variations disappear. By the time he gets to The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, though these stories were probably the most recorded of all, he has memorized them. And I'm hovering like a fly, waiting for the windshield on the freeway. So I won't be playing too many variations. There are a few reasons for this. First, they were no longer time fillers for tuning, but instead were written into the show. So the stories were practiced and rehearsed and not so much improvised. Plus, during the Lamb tour, by contrast, the band often had to wait for the story to finish well after they'd finished tuning. Finally, by this time the band was playing in larger venues, so the proximity of Peter away from his audience eliminated the improv and teasing that he enjoyed in more intimate settings. He kind of returns to this in his early solo work. Some people have no teeth. This song has no words. So, if you think of John Cusack or Phil Collins at the mention of Peter Gabriel's name, then I'm going to change that perception. Peter Gabriel has changed a lot since the years 1967 to 1975, when he was just 17 to 25 years old. And these stories represent all of the male youth one can expect from a randy young man entering adulthood. Well, I know you, you me, you me, I know 
His solo career, which I have just as enthusiastically followed, takes many wide turns too, and another show is required for that. But for this one, when I think of the band Genesis, this is what I remember, and from now on, you will too. Social security took care of this life. We watch in reverence as Narcissus is turned to a flower. A flower? Just in case you need reminding who Genesis are, on bass you've got Michael Rutherford, then on drums Phil Collins, Steve Hackett on lead guitar, Tony Banks on keyboard, and on verse percussion, flute, lead vocals, and uh, filthy stories, Peter Gabriel. You are shortly about to witness a small comic interlude. It's a special humorous sketch entitled, What's Happened to My Fucking Microphone? So I'm going to begin with a particular story rather than a particular song. In most cases, each story is paired with a specific song, but in the case of the green trouser suit, Peter uses it to introduce three different songs, maybe more. I only found three. I'll start with this story first because it's characteristic of the types of stories Peter tells, and also because the audio quality is pretty good on these three versions. And since it's not possible to categorize it with a specific song, it's a good place to start to get you used to what I'm going to do for the rest of the show. After I go through these three versions of the green trouser suit story, then I'll go pretty much chronologically following the groupings of songs as they correspond to the studio recordings. This story was actually printed on the record sleeve of Genesis Live, their first live recording put on LP in 1973. The story was removed on subsequent reissues, especially in different formats. The first audio version is from the show at the Technical College in Watford, Hertfordshire, England on March 4, 1972. Yeah, the tube train was absolutely packed full of people. That was just a picture of the circus. When it uh, stopped, ground to a halt somewhat mysteriously. In the last carriage there was a young lady in a green trouser suit and she got up when the train stopped, moved to the centre of the carriage and began very slowly to undo the buttons of her trouser top. Then slowly she peeled it off and let it drop to the floor. She repeated this process on her trousers, on her blouse, her brassia, and her little panties. This left her totally naked. She then moved one hand in between her legs and began to fiddle about a bit until she caught hold of a zip. She pulled the zip right up her body, through her face, over her head and down the back of her spine and working her fingers meticulously into the crack that the zip had left, she pulled her body in two neat little slices, which fell to the floor also splat. <laughs> this, however, left a strange golden shimmering rod in the place where she'd been standing. There'd been total silence in the carriage up to this point, 
at a large middle-aged lady who was wearing a pink poodle. Got up at this point, it was really too much for her. Stop this, it's disgusting, she shouted. The golden rod disappeared, leaving the trouser suit on a cleaning hanger with a ticket on the left arm. That was totally relevant to this song, which is called Twilight Alehouse. You can hear Peter at the end admit that the story is irrelevant to the song. Later, I'll play a short intro to Twilight Alehouse that is more relevant. The story remains relatively consistent in each retelling. Here he is at the Roxy in Los Angeles. This is from The Late Show on December 19, 1973, where he performed at least part of the show in a Santa Claus suit. The lady in the green trousers suit in the subway began to unbutton her top. Pop, 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 pop. And she slid her top apart and dropped it on the ground. She then unzipped her This is the wonderful world of Stephen Hackett and Tim Stewart. Pouring liquid in one end and pouring it out the other. So she ripped off her trousers, her blouse, her brassiere, her shoes, her tights, and her panties, dropping them all onto the floor silently. It was. So she moved her hand right in between her legs, began to look for God. It wasn't Sunday, so she found instead a cold metallic image of a zip. And the zip, she slowly moved up through her body, through her breasts, through her chin, mouth, nose, eyes, head, right over the crest, down until she could reach hold at the back of her neck with the other hand, sliding it all the way down the spine till it reached her happy end. She then worked her fingers into the slit the zip had left and gave two pulls on her left and her right side pull pull and her body neatly fell into two pieces which dropped to the floor splat there was left in the air hovering about six inches off the ground a thin, golden, shimmering rod. Well, up until this point, the other passengers had remained absolutely silent. <laughs> but this golden rod was really too much for a large, middle-aged lady who was wearing a pink poodle. So she got up heroically and shouted,
This is disgusting. So the golden rod disappeared, leaving the green trousers suit on a hanger with a cleaning ticket on the left arm saying, Firth of Fifth. The story again has little to do with the song Firth of Fifth, since Firth of Fifth has its own radically different story that is relevant to it. I'll play it and its many variations later. But for now, this just seems to have been an opportunity for Peter to tell this story. It also gave him an opportunity to electronically manipulate his voice. And the last recording of the green trouser suit story comes from 1982. Peter organized the WOMAD festival and he needed help funding it, so he asked his bandmates from Genesis. He left the band seven years earlier, and they agreed to do this reunion show to help him out. He got a little mixed up with the stories, having been away from them for so long, and you can hear him indicate that at the opening. This is from the National Bowl in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire, England, on October 2nd, 1982. This is referring to the previous story which we began in the tube train, when the train had stopped. And we were all looking around, as is all the passengers, and I noticed as a, a strange young lady, she was very anonymous, but she was sitting in the corner of the carriage in a green trouser suit. And when the lights went out for a moment, and they came back on, she was standing in the center of the carriage. And very slowly, she began to move her hands to the center of her body and unbutton her trouser suit. She took off the top of the trouser suit and dropped it on the floor. She undid her trousers, dropped those on the floor. Undid her shirt, dropped that on the floor. And her bra, her panties, socks, shoes, until she was stark naked. Then she moved her fingers in between her legs and began looking for something. What she found was something cold, something metallic. And she pulled it slowly upwards through her stomach, through her belly button. It was a zip. And it slowly moved upwards through her body, through her breasts, up her neck, through her face, her nose, her eyes, right over her head, until she could pull it right down the back of her spine. And then with her fingers, she split them into the crack that the zip had opened and slowly prized her body into two very neat slices, which fell to the floor. Splat. What was left where she'd been standing was one single shining rod. At this, there was an old lady sitting beside me and she said, This is disgusting, this is outrageous, stop it. And the rod disappeared, and all that was left was the green trouser suit with the cleaning ticket on the left arm saying, Ready. Like the previous versions of the green trouser suit story, it has nothing to do with Supper's Ready, since Supper's Ready has a story all its own. So this was just for the benefit of the reunion crowd. I don't know of any other recordings of this story, though I'm sure there are some. Maybe I'll find them later, but for now, you get the idea. 
For the next part of Peter Gabriel, the stories, I'll go back to the earliest stories I found. The first three are songs that never appeared on any of their studio recordings, but can be found on a few bootlegs. These aren't really stories, they're more like log lines. The first one is an intro to the single Twilight Ale House from the Charlois Festival Palais de Beaux-Arts, Charlois, Belgium, January 23rd, 1972. This one is about a man who's very fond of his drink, not, not water in fact. Uh, and he has so much drink that his head begins to go a little funny and he loses most of what he has. Uh, it's called Twilight Alehouse. That's it. All we know about Twilight Alehouse is it's about a guy who drinks. The next two I'm going to play are also from Belgium, but this time from Wallaway Saint Lambert on March 7th, 1971. They're both the earliest stories I've found and the earliest recording of a live show. The first is an introduction to another single titled Happy the Man. This is a number about a man who eats his fingernails. And that's it too. It's about a man who eats his fingernails. And the second one from that same show is titled The Light on the Bootleg, but I'm pretty sure Peter says this is called interlude just at the end of the clip. But whether we call it the light or interlude, it's clearly an early version of Lily White Lilith, which will appear on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in 1974. It's difficult to hear because of the audio, but also because Peter's trying to speak French. As he does throughout this show and many others, he speaks multiple languages, depending on the host country. Here is what the song is about. This next one is about a mic. A So, as maybe you could tell, it's about a light that is excreted from the left nostril. I'm not going to play the song, but if you search for The Light, Genesis, 1971, Belgium, you can listen to it. The next set of stories are paired with the song Stagnation from their second studio recording, Trespass. It's the only song from that recording with a story. And one of the versions comes from this same early 1971 Belgium show. This is how the lyrics to Stagnation are prefaced on the record sleeve of Trespass. To Thomas S. Eiselberg, a very rich man, who was wise enough to spend all his fortunes in burying himself many miles beneath the ground. As the only surviving member of the human race, he inherited the whole world. So first I'm going to play a short intro again from the Charlois Festival, January 23, 1972. This one is... Uh... A little older, uh, un peu plus, plus vieille, I'm sorry, yeah. it's uh, of a man 
after the bomb, the Aprila bomb, and uh, and how he plants his new crop of onions. It's called stagnation. Again, he's speaking French, and it's pretty clearly about a man after the bomb who plants a crop of onions. So now I'll play the version from that early 1971 show. The audio is pretty muffled, but I'll play it first, and then I'll read it out so you can be sure about how the story grows. This one, again, is from Wallaway saint lambert Belgium, on March 7th, 1971. This next one is about a man who had more cheese and onion potatoes than any other man. This made him exceedingly fat. Um, yes. Anyway, he was paid a large amount of money by the Smith Crisp Company, and he used it to build an air raid shelter beneath the ground. Uh, this he filled with onions to take away his underarm odors, and also with tomato sauce in which he used to take his morning bath. <laughs> he lived in this hole for five years and accumulated a great deal of money. After five years, he crawled up to the top again to discover that the bomb had dropped and all the little people have been running around the four and now lying flat on the ground. So he went for a walk with his dog. This is called Stagnation and was written for people with uh, bad breath. In case you couldn't make that out, this is what Peter said. This next one is about a man who ate more cheese and onion potato crisps than any other man. This made him exceedingly fat. Anyway, he was paid a large amount of money by the Smith Crisp Company, and he used this to build an air raid shelter beneath the ground. This he filled with onions to take away his underarm odors, and also with tomato sauce in which he used to take his morning bath. He lived in this home for five years and accumulated a great deal of money. After five years, he crawled up to the top again to discover that the bomb had dropped and all the little people who had been running around before were now lying flat on the ground. So he went for a walk with his dog. This is called stagnation and was written for people with bad breath. So this next one is from a show at Solihull Civic Hall, England, July 25th, 1972. And again, it's difficult to make out from the recording, so I'll play it first and then read it. This one and the one following it have become two of my favorite early Peter Gabriel stories since I hadn't heard them before doing the research for this show. Tom says I saw with a farmer. And uh, every Saturday go out with a shotgun and shoot the clouds, which he would knock down to the ground on the evening Sunday lunch. However, this particular Saturday, there was one very, very large cloud in the sky. Now, once Thomas fired at it, he just couldn't bring it down to the ground, so he threw his gun away and went to look at his crop of onions. His onions were not doing very well. The cloud was a sign that the bomb had just fallen. 
So he threw away his onions and went and sat in the middle of the farm where there was a pond, a very still pond. And there he studied his reflection for hours on end. This brought him immense pleasure. This is called stagnation. And in case you couldn't make that out, this is what Peter said. Thomas S. Eiselberg was a farmer, and every Saturday he would go up with his shotgun and shoot at the clouds, which he would knock down to the ground and eat for his Sunday nosh. However, this particular Saturday he spotted a very large cloud in the sky. He just couldn't bring it down to the ground, so he threw his gun away and went to look at his crop of onions. His onions were not doing very well. The cloud was a sign that the bomb had just fallen. So he threw away his onions and went and sat in the middle of the farm where there was a pond, a very still pond, and there he studied his reflection for hours on end. This rewarded immense pleasure. This is called stagnation. So I love the image of shooting at the clouds with a shotgun to try to bring them down. This version of the story also introduces the theme of Narcissus staring at his reflection in a pool of water, which appears later in the song Supper's Ready. So finally, there's one more version connected to stagnation. It's also very different from the others, and it adds some remarkable poetic images. Here's Peter telling it, and then I'll read it because the audio is again hard to make out. This is from the show at the Technical College in Watford, Hertfordshire, England, on March 4, 1972. Thomas S. Eisenberg was a tremendous Monopoly player, and he used to begin his game by tearing around the board for the green set with Oxford Street, Regent Street, and Bond Street. And uh, in real life, he actually owned these properties. And one day it struck him and they were remarkably dull. So he put some rope up across the streets and suspended from it some of the most famous men and women who'd been executed unjustly. Well, he hung them on thick rubber ropes so that if you were tall enough and had tremendous energy, you could leap off the pavement, catch hold of their feet and swing merrily in the street. This was very exciting. But the children, their eyes had been stroked out and replaced by little red light bulbs that would go flash, 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 which used to light up at 6.30 p.m. precisely when the electricity was a lot cheaper. This song was written for Thomas, by Thomas. It's called Stagnation. So this is what Peter said, and there's one word that I just can't make out, which sounds like strappy, maybe it's scrap heap, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to say strappy when I read it. Thomas S. Eiselberg was a tremendous Monopoly player, and he used to begin his game by tearing around the board for the green set with Oxford Street, Regent Street, and Bond Street, and in real life he actually owned these properties. Among the strappy, they were remarkably dull. So he put some rope out across the street and suspended from it some of the most famous men and women who had been executed unjustly. But he hung them on thick rubber ropes so that if you were tall enough and had tremendous energy, you could leap off the pavement, catch hold of their feet, and swing merrily in the street. This was very exciting. 
But the children, their eyes had been stripped out and replaced by red little light bulbs that would go flash, 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 which used to light up at 6.30 p.m. precisely when the electricity was a lot cheaper. This song was written for Thomas by Thomas. It's called Stagnation. So those are all the versions of Stagnation that I was able to find or where the audio quality was even close to decipherable. Like I said, no other songs from Trespass have an accompanying story, but The Knife surely deserved one. So next I'll move on to the songs that are on Nursery Crime. And a merry old soul was so he There are three songs on Nursery Crime that have corresponding stories. They are The Musical Box, The Return of the Giant Hogweed, and The Fountain of Salmasis. So I'm going to begin with the most frequent of the stories. It also has the most variations. The musical box was a feature of most Genesis shows from their earliest years, and it was an absolute crowd-pleaser. It finally ended up on Nursery Crime, which included a text of the story on the dust jacket. But the song really got its life from the live shows. So I'm going to play several different versions chronologically, all slightly different, so you can see how Gabriel played with the narrative and the crowd. They span from 1972 to 1974, with one from the 1982 WOMAD Festival Genesis Reunion. The first is from the Charleroi Festival, Palais des Beaux-Arts, Charleroi, Belgium, January 23, 1972. This little boy is playing a game of croquet quite peacefully. When little Henrietta rushes up behind him, picks up her croquet mallet and smashes him over the head with it. This sends our little hero, Henry, flying up to heaven. But he then comes all the way down again, back into his body. And it is in this state that he falls in love with a little lady and they depart for the attic. But the nurse, who is downstairs, hears noises. She rushes up the stairs, picks up the musical box, and smashes it into the boy's head. Strangely enough, this is called the musical box, or La Bota Music. With the introduction of Little Henrietta, Croquet, and the nurse, the story takes its shape. Since this is the Belgium show we heard from earlier, Peter speaks French at the end. This is something he did from the earliest years to the present. Whenever he did a show in a different country, he introduced parts of the songs in the language of the home country. Later in his solo career, he recorded two complete albums in German. In live recordings, you can hear him speak multiple languages, and this attention to different cultures much later feeds into his interest in world music and the creation of his record label and recording studio for real-world music. 
But before that, here's Peter again and the musical box from the BBC Paris Studios, London, March 2nd, 1972, in one of the most audible tellings of the tale. Henry, Henry, Henry! What's happened to our game of croquet? Cried little Henrietta. Henry found croquet completely irresistible, and so he rushed out onto the front lawn to join his little sister. Just as play was about to commence, she raised her croquet mallet in the air, and with one fair swoop, she removed little Henry's head. This had the effect of killing him. But two weeks later, she was in Henry's old room and she found an old musical box, which used to play the tune of Old King Cole. And when she opened the musical box and the tune began to ring out, a strange, somewhat familiar pair of green knickerbockers were mysteriously lowered from the ceiling. Into these, Henry was dropped. He'd been given a second round. Always a bit on the roundy side, Henry found himself a young lady, and he led this young lady up the old wooden stairs into the attic to show off his very fine water tank. <laughs> the nurse was downstairs, however, and she heard strange noises, so rushed up picked up the musical box and instinctively smashed it into the bearded child, destroying both. In the middle of this number, we've arranged for a small pair of satin green knickerbockers to be lowered from the uh, BBC Paris studios, into which, very casually, a naked Eddie Waring will be dropped. <laughs> this is called the musical box. Henry's full name, which we learn from the record jacket, is Henry Hamilton Smythe. He's eight years old. Little Henrietta is his sister. The young lady who he takes up to the attic later is someone else, and we'll learn her name soon enough. At this point, there is no explanation for the beard on the child, but we'll learn that from some of the later retellings, too. The green knickerbockers from this point recur in different ways and Peter pins them on different people in different shows. The next is from the Reading Festival in Reading, Berkshire, England, August 11th, 1972. A gentleman of a large Victorian house used to keep his mucus in a little wooden box. He became so attached to this box that he fitted a music playing thingy on the underside. This qualified it as a musical box. However, one day he took the musical box into the dining room, which is where he kept all his relations in little glass boxes, all hung on the wall. It had the very strange effect of bringing back to life his little son, Henry, who had been recently killed in a fierce game of croquet. This is the sad tale of Henry and the musical box. The box of mucus is a new thing, and so is the introduction of Henry's father. And he's keeping his relations in little glass boxes in his dining room. Henry, by this point, is already dead, so this is sort of a sequel to the main story. The next one is from Imperial College, London, November 18, 1972, on a bootleg called Violent Dreams. Everyone's Uncle Henry managed to pluck up enough courage to buy himself a dirty magazine. 
and he hurried home with the dirty magazine under his dirty raincoat till he returned to his dirty house where he leapt up the dirty stairs and locked the dirty bathroom door behind him. As he was turning over the pages of the dirty magazine, he noticed it was having a most peculiar effect on his dirty body. <laughs> or to be more specific, his hair was moving from a dirty normal position to a dirty erect position. <laughs> What the hell can I do with my hair standing on end, thought Uncle Henry. I certainly can't leave the house like this. So he went down the dirty stairs into the dirty kitchen, where he made himself a dirty cup of tea. <laughs> then he picked up the dirty pussy on the floor, put it on his dirty lap, and began to stroke it very slowly and dirtily. <laughs> Nine weeks later, <laughs> came home from dirty work. There was an awful mess on the dirty floor. There were hundreds and hundreds of dirty little kittens running about the place. Alas, my dirty little sphinxes, he said. It's a giveaway. They all had Uncle Henry's face. <laughs> So he picked them up one by one by their tail, dropped them into a very clean white porcelain bowl, slid it into a clean plastic carrier bag, and dropped them to the bottom of the dirty river. <laughs> and he came back at a plate full of gorgeously wonderful Kellogg's cornflakes. <laughs> Must emphasize Kellogg's cornflakes. <laughs> Pulled out the musical box. The children in the game of croquet are gone from this version. Uncle Henry is the character, but we don't get any explanation of who he is. Is it little Henry with the beard before the nurse kills him in the attic? Who is the niece or nephew telling the story? This one's a head-scratcher with the cats as sphinxes and sexual innuendo, but it's fun. It was probably just Peter's way of keeping his fans guessing which song was coming next, as we saw with the green trouser suit story. Here's the version from Shepperton Film Studios, England, recorded on October 30th and 31st in 1973, and it's one of the few shows that was professionally filmed and is now available on video. Now, let me take you to a peaceful English game of croquet, where at this precise point in time, little Henry is approaching his first shot, but little Cynthia is behind little Henry. grows his little wings, flies all the way upwards, then all the way downwards. Because he's been rejected up there, told to come back as an old man at the opening of his old musical box. So his sister Henrietta is now out of the story and replaced by little Cynthia. 
Again, the record dust jacket gives us her full name, which is Cynthia Jane de Blaise William. She's nine, a year older than Henry, and she's the little lady referred to earlier that he takes up to the attic to get Randy with. Peter starts playing with sound effects and gestures, and wings appear for that trip up to heaven that we heard about in the first version I played. And we finally learn that on the trip back down, he returns as an old man at the opening of his musical box. The Dust Jacket story tells us that this musical box plays the tune of Old King Cole, and when Cynthia opens it, a small spirit figure appears in the form of the young Henry, who rapidly ages on the outside but maintains a child's mind. A lifetime of desire surges through him, and in his attempt to persuade Cynthia to satisfy his romantic needs, the nurse hears the commotion and hurls the musical box at who she thinks is an old man and destroys both. Here is the version from the Roxy Club Los Angeles, the early show on December 19th, 1973. Now we'd like to take you to the English lawn, where from the large Victorian mansion is merging a little boy, complete with pantaloons, and girlfriend, little Cynthia. Little Cynthia comes right up behind him with her croaky mallet raised high in the air. Dead. But like all good English dead boys, little Henry grew furry, soft, white wings. And these he moved upwards and downwards, and it took him right up through the clouds to the golden throne sitting upon them, where he was rejected by the authorities and returned to earth to finish off his lifespan inside an old man's body his old man's body. This was on the opening by little Cynthia of his old musical box. So Cynthia has firmly replaced Henrietta and we get more details about the sprouting of wings. And Henry is wearing pantaloons or what are likely satin green knickerbockers. Here is the student auditorium in Toledo, Ohio, April 6, 1974, where the story first gets a date. In 1996, April 5th, a small English boy disappeared behind the bushes in the middle of the game of Crunky, for what is known to be the first recorded street. He leapt in front of his unsuspecting gangster. who was named Cynthia, who was about to begin a first stroke. And she was astonished by the young man, Henry, leaping in front of her, naked, and somewhat excited too. She raised a trophy man at high in the air and pursued him with alacrity.
You're too kind. <laughs> Henry was dead, but he grew very quickly, fully deodorized white resplendent wings under each armpit. And he had to flap these wings like hell to get to heaven. <laughs> He was rejected by heaven and returned somewhat sadly into the old man's body he would have occupied on the opening of Cynthia and his favorite musical box. The pantaloons have disappeared in this version, and the first recorded streak apparently occurred on April 5th, 1896. It seems that he now has to flap his wings to get to heaven rather than just rise. In this next one from the Ford Auditorium in Detroit, Michigan on April 16, 1974, we get a little crowd heckling. April 7, 1896. And a little boy called Henry disappeared behind a small bush and reappeared seconds later for a great historical event, the first recorded streak. Little Henry proceeded rapidly in front of his little croaky partner named Cynthia. She was initially horror-struck and a little later titillated. And she went in pursuit of little Henry with his croaky, with her croaky mallet raised high in the air. My mother does not eat shit. There is also a bar. Anyway, little Cynthia, she continued to race her croaky mallet high in the air and brought it down suddenly. <coughs> Henry was no more. He was dead he rapidly acquired furry little white balls under each armpit, which grew into beautiful white wings, fully deodorized. And the wings he had to flap like hell to get to heaven. A cheap joke. Heaven? The authorities rejected our Henry, and he was sent all the way down again to reappear in an old man's body on the opening of his old musical box. The date of that streak is now April 7th, 1896, instead of April 5th, as recorded in the show from Toledo 10 days before. So this is the second recorded streak. And Cynthia, in these last two stories, is a little excited by seeing Henry naked, but she expresses this through sadist tendencies. After Peter's response to the heckler who yells, Your mother eats shit, shut the fuck up, and Peter's response... The voice you hear next is Phil Collins from the drum kit who recommends to the heckler that there is also a bar that he could go to instead. Next is from the Music Hall in Boston, Massachusetts from April 24th, 1974. Little Henry disappeared behind the bushes as the croaky game was about to start. The lady he was about to play with, Cynthia, was horrified as his naked form dashed past her unsuspecting self. 
She was also a little titillated. I pursued the young man with a croaking manner raised high in the air. fixture in the story even though they don't appear in the text version on the dust jacket and we've come a long way from mucus and dirty kitty cats then there is this one from the new york academy of music in new york city on may 6th 1974 it was a warm sunny afternoon henry and cynthia walk out the French windows onto the croquet lawn. Henry prepares himself for the first shot. Cynthia approaches from behind. Henry does not see Cynthia approaching. expanded to glorious technicolor wings, fully deodorized, of course, and capable of raising the occupant, if flapped like hell, up to heaven. Unfortunately, Henry was rejected by the authorities, returned all the way down again, to occupy an old man's body, his old man's body, on the opening of his musical box. By the time the band gets to New York two weeks later, Henry is no longer naked or streaking, but enthusiastically playing croquet with Cynthia. This is the case also at the Palace Theatre in Providence, Rhode Island, on December 8, 1974. This particular thing concerns the two Victorian children. One named Henry, the other named Cynthia. And little Cynthia says to little Henry, she says, What about a game of croquet, Henry? Henry replies, Of course I'd be delighted. 
seven and eight year old kids walk out to the freshly, freshly mown croquet lawn holding hands. And just as Henry is about to begin his very first stroke on the red croquet ball, little Sophia comes up behind him with a croquet mallet raised high in the air. He's dead. He rapidly acquires two fluffy white fully deodorized wing under each armpit, flies all the way up to heaven, is rejected by the authorities, comes all the way down again, and meanwhile little Cynthia pokes around in the old attic room and discovers beneath some books a little wooden musical box. You might have noticed that the kids are each a year younger than on the dust jacket. And the voice thing is something Peter started doing more in the 1974 shows, and especially in the Lamb Lies Down tour. But leaping over that, the last musical box story I'll play comes from the WOMAD Festival for the Genesis reunion eight years later. This was at the National Bowl in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire, England, on October 2nd, 1982. Croquet is a particularly vicious British sport. And one uh, young participant by name uh, Cynthia was getting so annoyed with her partner that she dug a hole in the lawn, stuck him in the center of it, buried him up, lifted up a croquet mallet and decapitated his head. This left very little of Henry. <laughs> However, she was a short while later investigating his room and she discovered, hidden away in a drawer, in an old desk, a strange little brown box This she opened up, and the, when the figure of Henry emerged, he was there all ready to manifest his love for this young lady, but he grew older and older, still retaining the child's mind. This is the sequence of the musical box. It seems that Peter's time away from Genesis had also given Cynthia time to advance her sadist skills as she digs this hole for Henry to better lop off his head. There are many more versions of the musical box story, but these cover the basics of the narrative. That was an unaccompanied bass pedal solo from Michael Rutherford. This is David Colosi with the Napping Wizard Sessions. You've been listening to the first part of a multi-part tribute called Peter Gabriel, The Stories. In part two, I'll continue with the tales from nursery crime and then move into those from Foxtrot, Selling England by the Pound, and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Tune in to the next episode of The Napping Wizard Sessions, where I continue to explore Peter Gabriel as a storyteller from the early Genesis years. Thank you for listening. And the nurse will tell you lies.
of a kingdom beyond the skies. But I am lost. <laughs>